Welcome to Shroom for Two, the Plants vs. Zombies Heroes podcast, coming at you with post-MLB trade deadline reactions. I'm Mike. And I'm Taylor, who has no idea what Mike's talking about. There's a thing in baseball where there's like a point in every season where everyone goes, all right, if you're going to swap players around, do it now, or else things are going to get really weird. I think I knew that part. That stopped about two hours ago from when we're recording this. We're recording this on a Tuesday for once instead of a Wednesday. Very strange. And Well, you can blame Comcast for that. My internet has been complete and total garbage for the last little while. I got home from work today and saw that my internet was working, so I was like, holy shit, let's record the show early. Uh, so if I sound like a robot, then uh, you'll know who to blame. And if this recording is ten minutes long, you'll understand why. Yeah. So what have you been up to, Mike? I've been playing a whole bunch of Chrono Trigger, which means I have not been playing a whole bunch of PVC Heroes. Well, what have you been doing in PVC Heroes, given that that's what the show is about? Grinding a little bit on the free-to-play account. I'm up to 39 on there, running uh, Barry Spadow and Barry Solar Flare still. I only had two click bees because I didn't have the 10x hero this week, and I'm probably going to break down and buy Captain Combustible because my free-to-play account also has the swapping back and forth between two 10x heroes every week thing. Yeah, that's really weird. It is, I mean, but... I- it- I, I appreciate how consistently weird it is, because honestly, if if your multiplier hero only goes back and forth between two of them, that is really helpful to like a free-to-play player who only has a handful of heroes. Being able to reliably get the 10x multiplier is really important to that grind. Yeah, I suppose so. It is really weird, though. Well, you got a, another good um, event card this week for your free-to-play account. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in a little bit as soon as I check. Yep, making sure that my hero is still switching between Captain Combustible and Spadow. Four months now. I've lost track. Yeah, I mean, I stopped counting on my on my account that it's it's pretty much just Green Shadow, Beta Caratina, uh, Rust Bolt, and Immortitia are my two and two. I feel like the zombie ones are still pretty random for me, but I did get Professor Brainstorm for, like, the second time in three weeks just now. Yeah, I mean... You know, if I'm going to pick something to be weird about this game, uh, the 10x hero is something that I'm willing to let be weird. Well, something weird about another game is that uh, just now, as of recording this, Hearthstone is continuing to leak their cards from their upcoming expansion, and they pretty much put Bad Moon Rising into the game. Yeah, and speaking of Bad Moon Rising, let's go to card of the week. Time for the card of the week, and the card this week is Bad Moon Rising. The seven-cost brainy trick, just a trick, no tribes on this one. Transform all zombies into random zombies that cost five or more. Uh, So this is everybody's favorite haymaker finisher spell for the token swarm decks uh, that get a bunch of little dudes out, you know, with uh, Brain Vendor and Medulla Nebula and other stuff that makes tokens and, and or mana, and then just, like, spin the wheel and see what you get. Holy crap, this is incredible. This card is... This card really, is super good. Really amazing. It opens up a whole new kind of deck crafting where the field you fill with little cheap dudes like Brain Vendor and Leprechaun Imp, those suddenly become your big finishers, and it makes a big field a lot more dangerous and you a lot riskier to let that 1-1 one, one token live for a while because that might turn into a 7-7. A seven, seven. There are a few cards like this where it's like you ramp a bunch and then play a spell rather than you ramp a bunch and play a creature. Um, you know, the one that's the most similar to it on the zombie side is Gargantuar's Feast, which is the 11 mana make three random gargs. Um, and uh, this is pretty substantially better than that in virtually every way. Yeah, I think especially as far as the brain cost, because 
7 is a number that you can ramp to even without like Medulla Nebula shenanigans or things like that. You can get to turn 7 pretty reliably in a game, but 11 might as well say a billion as far as how hard it is to ramp up to that many brains and stay alive for that long to let that haymaker come in. Sure, you need to have a field for this card to be useful at all, but there's so many cheap little tokens and creatures. You can do, like, Beam Me Ups or Cosmic Scientists. Like, you can put this card into Conjure Huge Giganticus. You know, maybe not, a, like, like, a staple of it, but sneaking in two of these as another win condition is very on the table. Uh, the other thing with Garg's Feast is that it's in the color with the Garg's rather than the color with the ramp. So, Bad Moon Rising, one of the great things about it is that it contains all of the pieces within its own faction that make it work. So you've got the ramp, and you've also got enough small dudes to be able to power out the Bad Moon Rising and have you get two or three or four spins off of it uh, on the same turn that you play it. Definitely one of the best uh, takers advantage of Brain Vendor, the three-cost card that gives you three, three brains when you play it, essentially paying for itself. And, you know, on its own, that card doesn't really make a lot of competitive sense, but... Being able to just add another token to your board for free is a big swing in something like this. Yes, give me a second, I'm counting. So one of the things that's really cool about this um, is that uh, not only do you get to fill the board up with awesome, enormous zombies, um, which includes ones that you don't happen to own, um, there is also a chance of basically winning the game immediately because one of the things that you can get is Zombot 1000, the 9-mana 9-9 Destroy All Plants. Um, and chances are, pretty much no matter what the plant player has going on, if on turn seven you add at minimum nine power of stats worth to the board and also wipe the plant's entire team, um, then they're going to lose. Uh, so we can go to my friend, the hypergeometric calculator, which I've mentioned a few times, which is the way that you find all, how likely it is that a particular random occurrence will happen. Um, and we can find out what the probability is. So there are 48 zombies by my count that are of cost five or greater. And we want to see what the chance is to get at least one Zombot 1000. Uh, and according to the math, which we'll put in the show notes, you have a 2% chance per die you roll, which makes about sense, a little bit more than 2% chance. Because there's 48 zombies, that's almost 50. One out of 50 is 2%. So uh, so there you go. So if you have an entire board's worth of tokens and you play a Bad Moon Rising, you have a 10% chance to hit a Zombot 1000, which is interesting because uh, when this card came out, you had a much, much higher chance because there were two fewer set releases worth of cards that were in the mix. And so you only had like 30 or so cards in the mix. So if you had five dudes on the board, you had a 15% chance. So this is one of the cards that Unlike much of the rest of the haymakers in the game, the power level actually goes down. The average power level goes down as cards are added to the game. Especially if we see any more, um, five or more cost creatures with cheap stats and some other kind of strong effect that maybe doesn't end up mattering in this particular uh, summoning. Like, you know, things like Foot Soldier, which only matters if it's on heights, or Raw Zombie, which doesn't care about stealing your son at that point in the turn. And it's also terrible. Or like, you know, something with a really specialized end of the battlefield, like gadget scientist. Like if that's your only science dude, then you just did a, a crummy two power bonus attack and that doesn't really matter. But uh, 
That is to say, even though the card power, like average power level, will probably go down, this card is still like pretty amazing. Um, it's one of the best things to be doing as a brainy day. I think. Yeah, there are definitely very few misses in the pool of things you can get from Bad Moon Rising, and you know, even just one of them. You know, it doesn't have to be Zombot. It could be Trickster. It could be uh, the the Mechasaur. It could be a wannabe hero. Like any number of things can be the the uh, Plankwalker. Get Plankwalker and fill totally. up the rest of your board. Like, yeah, this this card means death, and you definitely need to be careful of it if you're up against a zombie hero and they have seven brains left over, you know, either sap them with something like Brain Nana or Forget-Me-Nuts or clear their field real quick with, like, a Shrinking Violet or uh, any number of things, but it's something you should definitely be aware of if there's a bunch of cheap little losers on the field and your opponent is banking seven. Certainly them passing with seven uh, brains out of the creature phase is, like, they're basically yelling at the top of their lungs, I have a Bad Moon Rising in my hand. But, you know, that's all just to say that one of the things that makes this so good is the way that you play around this card is to play into Valkyrie. Like, the way you make Bad Moon Rising worse is to kill all their weenies, and the way you make Valkyrie better is by killing all their weenies. So, you know, the the two strategies are compatible in that way, and, you know, that just kind of adds up to a more consistent, higher win percentage out of a deck that plays both. Yeah, it's a great card, especially for new players. You know, it is pretty well at home with that Super Brains deck you start out with because the creatures you get early on are not very powerful, and being able to change them out for big giant haymakers is a great boon. And you don't even need four of them. Like, you can get by with two, probably. If you're relying on it as your win condition, period, you maybe three. But still a very good card to pick up for people of all skills. Yeah, I mean, like, this is the contents of your deck are as close to irrelevant as possible when you play this card. It's like, do you have small dudes? It doesn't matter what they are. They all have the same chance of turning into a great thing. You know, in that way, you like things that make multiple tokens or things that die and leave behind a token. Um, those are the kinds of things that are good with this card because like it lets your board be more full in an easier way. Yeah, Brainstorm's superpower that summons two dancers is perfect for this. Totally. I think... This is a reasonable time to mention that, um, you know, we haven't seen any new cards for this game in a while. Um, and uh, cards like this are one of the things that makes more cards in the game be fun. Like, even if the cards are event card releases or, like, it's not a full-on booster expansion, or even if the cards are, like, only marginally playable and you might not end up putting them in your deck, um, having a larger pool of stuff to find off of these random effects is very fun. And, you know, so while I'm certainly not echoing the people in the Reddit saying that the game is dead, I would definitely like to see some more stuff in the game so we could have more toys to play with in our Bad Moon Rising. Time for another mailbag segment. We've got plenty of questions this week, and thank you to everyone who sent some in. And our first piece of mail comes in from listener Chang Beanie, who writes in, Hey, as I've commented on the subreddit, I feel that berry decks are not as OP as people say they are. Berry decks are one that rely heavily on having the right card at the right time, and if you don't have that card like the you know, strong berry or a strawberry and you'll fall short. And I also see berry decks can really fail to tackle heavy swarm control or large zombies, especially with armor. What do you think? What do you think, Mike? All right. Well, 
berry decks definitely have their strengths, and it's pretty well documented what kind of win condition you're going for. Most berry decks rely on getting a strong berry loop where you hit them over and over again until their block meter fills, and you do that enough times and you win. But, you know, having to rely on uh, on block meter, you know, that has its own perils and shortcomings where a well-timed superpower can break up your chain. And, uh, yeah, armor is a big thorn in the side of uh, any kind of strawberryian things, because if that first hit for one doesn't happen, then the Stra- Sergeant Strongberry will not proc and do the extra two damage. But I think uh, equally terrifying is Gargantuar throwing Gargantuar, which is... Uh, even more of a of a lover of splash punishment from Strawberryan, where you know if you set your field up wrong, your opponent can play one Garg and then have a field full by the time the attacks start coming around. For sure. What do you think about Barry Dex Taylor? Um, well, so they're certainly quite strong. You know, calling something OP is is always a matter of opinion. Something that the Barry Dex definitely are is very linear. Um, so what I mean by that is. A berry deck has basically the same plan every game. It wants to play small creatures like High Voltage Current and Shelf Mushroom, control the board during the mid-game with Strawberryan and Sergeant Strongberry, and then just, like, kill you. Um, and so when a deck is linear in that way, that means that the same hate cards are good against it every time. There certainly are a large number of hate cards that kind of slot in very well against what the berry deck is trying to do. Um, Squirrel Herder being, I think, the best one that just explicitly destroys a berry. Jumana 2-2 Gravestone, when, when revealed, destroy a nut or berry. That hits basically the entire contents of their deck, and that is you know, something that they have basically no ability to fight against. If it's Solar Flare, they have ab- actual zero ways to fight against it, and if it's um, Spadal, then they've just got Gravebuster, which they might not even be running anyway because they're running a linear deck. I think the criticism of uh, relying heavily on having the right card at the right time is uh, not really that damning because that kind of luck applies to most decks, in my opinion. And, you know, also, like you mentioned with Gravebuster, yeah, if you get burnt by the Gravebuster, that is a, a big win, but they need to have the Gravebuster in their hand in order for it to be uh, applicable. Yeah, and I mean... The other thing is that the cards in the berry deck are on kind of a relatively even power level. Like the Strawberryan and Sergeant Strongberry are like clearly the biggest card advantage mechanisms and they're the biggest like board control mechanisms. But, you know, whether they play a shelf mushroom on turn two or a, uh, a wild berry on turn two or something like that, those early game plays are kind of all within the same band of, of power level. And so they really have a fair amount of time to draw there their stuff that they need to have at the right time. So, you know, I, I would even argue that it's one of the less draw-dependent decks on the plant side because, you know, your your game plan is just pretty simple given that you're very linear. But, I mean, I just think that there are metagame tools available to the zombie hero, especially if you're beastly, that can counter the berry deck to a reasonable extent. And, I mean, I mean, it's a very good deck, so if they get the best possible draw and you stumble, then they can probably just run over you. Um, and if you don't get to the late game where you can play your garg throwing garg then yeah you're probably going to lose but i would agree with the listener that they are um that the berry deck is not as op as people say i think part of why the perception of berry decks being so strong is that it's able to be a really high tier archetype of deck without relying on any legendaries at all Mm. so you know one that lowers the barrier to entry so more people will play 
a good deck that doesn't rely on legendaries. So like seeing it more might make it be perceived as being more OP. But also the fact that it's able to be that powerful without needing any legendaries when pretty much every other archetype of deck has some sort of tribal legendary that makes it better. But berries don't really have that. I mean, I mean, I guess uh, what like Velociradish Hunter is probably the best legendary to put in a berry deck. Uh, yeah, it somehow it never occurred to me until right now that there is not a legendary berry. Uh, yeah, so keep an eye out for that if we ever live to see set five. All right, our next piece of listener mail comes from listener Austin, uh, who writes in with some game mechanic interactions because uh, we always like those. Uh, they write in with two. Uh, the first one being, did you know that if a barrel of dead beards is in a gravestone and it gets grave busted, it will not spawn a Captain Deadbeard? And uh, I had not seen that happen, but uh, that does make total sense to me. You know, like the the power is active when the zombie is in play, um, and when it's in the gravestone, it doesn't count as in play. Um, and so, you know, that's a that's a reasonable way for that to work, in my opinion. Do you agree? Yeah, no argument here, and I'm definitely glad it does work that way because having a 4-3 hiding in the gravestone immediately after you destroy the gravestone feels especially cruel. Oh yeah, and I mean it's not like Barrel of Dead Beards needs to be any better than it is. It's already kind of ridiculous. Um, But then here is a very strange one. So Austin says, when a Sonic Bloom, Click P, Buff Shroom, or Ketchup mechanic is played in a total eclipse, it will die before its ability can trigger. But little Buddy the zero one that heals the hero for two will heal will heal the hero and then die. Uh, which sounds like a bug to me. The only part of that that surprises me is the ketchup mechanic, because uh, Fryam Up did a video about weird interactions, and it focused a lot on what happens when you play one health dudes on a total eclipse, and he seemed to find that anything that will heal the hero will take priority and definitely resolve for the uh, eclipse kills it, but like, everything else will just die in the Eclipse, so, like, Tough Beats will not grow, and Buff Shroom will not buff, and all of those things. But I, I didn't know catch it Mechanic. Um, like, I thought that that would have healed you as well. Maybe it has to do with um, the way it's printed on the card. It says, like, for each zombie, this gets plus one, plus one, and heal the hero for one. That, like, maybe it that means it takes place, like, in the buff layer. Oh, yeah, probably. in the, the heal layer. Yeah, like, the, the, first, the first part of the code does the growing. Yeah, that, that, yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, whereas with Lil Buddy, that's the only text in the text box. That is pretty weird, though. So I, I casually dropped the word layer there. I've mentioned this a little bit, but that, like, magic has this ridiculously inscrutable set of rules interactions for like when simultaneous effects take place in what order um and like it is widely regarded as the most confusing thing about the game and uh one of the advantages of digital games like this is to try to be able to hide as much of that as possible from the players um but it seems as though a little bit of the layers are are peeking out uh in this particular mode yeah, but not quite alarming enough for there to be an errata, thank God. Is that how you pronounce that? Errata, errata, errata? Uh, it's definitely not errata. I think I've heard errata and errata. I I think I'm ambivalent about the two. Yeah, thank God I don't know more about that word. I think it's like legalese, maybe, for like when you change a law. I don't know, whatever. Uh, but thank you, listener Austin, for uh, for writing in with those cool mechanics. Yes, thank you. Our next email comes from listener Greg who writes in to say, Love the podcast. I've been playing PPZ Heroes since it first launched, and he wants to give a shout-out to Impdex. 
He's a big Imp fan, and it's a very useful tribe for new or veteran players. And, and he also sends in a huge Giganticus Imp deck recipe along with this, which uh, is a pretty nice-looking deck and has some really strong points. It uh, features the Space Cowboy on Graveyard combo that we've talked about in the tournament breakdown and how busted of a combo that is, and really any deck running those two cards has a floor to how bad it can be. <laughs> Absolutely, and I mean, hey, the the huge Giganticus, like, best possible draw causes that to come down on turn three, so, like, ew. Yeah, I mean, that that super also makes this deck pretty crazy in other ways, making all of your imps cost real cheap. You know, being able to throw down two imposters and an imp commander on turn two is pretty wacky itself. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty nasty. So this deck is in the show notes, obviously. Um, you can probably kind of imagine most of what's in it, given that it is a... Um, a primarily sneaky imp deck, but you should still check it out. Uh, One of the things that's interesting about it, uh, in my opinion, is that it's just an imp deck that also has Neutron Imp in it. In the past, Neutron Imp, especially before it got turned into a 2-mana 2-3, was really necessarily a build-around-me for, like, an environment-heavy deck. Um, Whereas this, like, like, it does a bonus attack whenever you play an environment, or whenever anyone plays an environment. And so, with this... You've got the four graveyards and then the three of the four HG superpowers that create an environment as well. So you've basically got seven hits worth of environment. Yeah, that is more than enough to make it worth your while to throw the the Neutron Imps in here. Yeah, and, and the fact that Neutron Imp is cheap now means that it's cheap enough to be able to, like, you played a Toxic Waste Imp earlier in the game and it's still alive, so now you play Neutron Imp and an environment at the same turn don't even have to play them together, um, and then you get to do a bonus attack with your deadly creature. Something else that's cool about that is that the HG environment that freezes a thing and gives your dude strike through, that is is often effectively like kill the thing that this creature is in front of, but with Neutron Imp, when you play that freeze environment, not only do you kill the thing that you play the environment on, the Neutron Imp gets to also operate in whatever lane it happens to be in. So you're able, like, it takes this card which is already, like, gross combat trick card advantage everything you want um, and get even extra points on it which is really good and so I think that's a cool inclusion to the deck even being a 2-3 imp is pretty formidable because most of the imps at that cost have either 1 or 2 health that makes the, the neutron imp a lot bulkier and able to more surely survive whatever first thing it runs into like I don't run it a lot, but when I get one off of Imp Throwing Imp, I'm really thrilled about it. Yeah, it makes, uh, sort of, I'm thinking about it now more than I often do, and it makes me want to build a deck with it. This deck is very similar to the Brain Freeze Imp deck I've been playing uh, in the last week, except I'm running uh, Sneezing Zombie and uh, Ducky Tube Zombie instead of the Leprechauns and Teleports. But yeah, Imp decks are really good, and real strong baseline of power for any kind of sneaky hero. Like, just make an imp deck and throw in a couple of splashy compliments, and you're in good shape with whichever hero you choose. So, our next piece of uh, listener mail comes from listener Elliot, and uh, they've got a couple things to say. First, they've got some follow-up from that um, episode where the tournament ended, and I said that you get your sweet 50 Canadian dollars in Canadian twos because there's something that we don't have here. Listener Elliot points out that we do, in fact, have $2 bills in the United States, which I actually did know. I just forgot about in that moment. Um, and also follows up to say that um, they put they sent us a banana deck a little bit later, um, and one of the things we commented on was that there was no repeat moss in the banana deck. 
the they say that um, Repeat Moss was like very instrumental to their initial um, like getting to Ultimate phenomenon, and that you know they just kind of transitioned away from it as they wanted to diversify their gameplay experiences and uh you know so there's like nothing wrong with that of course and uh they also commented that they didn't want to get hosed by a gravestone uh which repeat moss definitely gets hosed by gravestones uh as uh, i'm sure you have experienced in your repeat moss playing days mike oh yeah definitely a very uh 101 class as far as what to do when your opponent plays a repeat moss and um props for wanting to uh to stretch out and prove that you're not too reliant on one set of cards. I do have a $2 bill story, though, real quick. Okay. When my great-grandmother died, we went through her house, and we found, like, an old coin collection and a big wad of—not a wad, but, like, a couple of big bundles of $2 bills that had— No kidding. —like a red stamp on it. Okay, so you know how in a dollar there's the little colored circular stamp? Yeah, like a little—almost like a watermark. Yeah, yeah, and I think they're usually green, except mm-hmm. these ones were red, and mm. we were wondering, like, oh man, does this make these super rare? And no, they were still just worth $2. It seems like a really inconvenient bill denomination to have. I don't often run into things that cost $2. Not anymore. I guess it's, like, okay for tipping, I guess, you know? Like, if you are gonna, if you've only got, like, 20s in your wallet, you can't really effectively tip someone, but if you've got twos, then, like, that's a way to give someone a little bit more tip money. We'd probably see more of them if we made, like, a coin dollar instead of a paper dollar, but the paper mm. one is kind of a big deal. Oh, yeah, and uh, yeah. I guess I, I have a second $2 bill story. Uh, one time I went and I bought a record with a bunch of $2 bills because I wanted to do the most hipster thing I could think of. Oh, okay. Yeah, wow, that's pretty damn hipstery. What was the record? It was the soundtrack to hip- 2001 Space Odyssey. Okay, that's, like, reasonably hipstery. I couldn't pass it up. It was $8, and I knew... I had $10 worth of twos in my wallet for reasons I can no longer remember. I think probably because I wanted to do the most tipster thing I can think of at the bank. Okay. Oh, did you, like, get two? Oh, can you just get twos at a bank? Somehow I never thought of that. I have been able to, but uh, I can't even rely on being able to get a roll of quarters when I go into an actual bank anymore. You can Hmm. try. Let us know how it turns out on the show next week. Maybe so. Um, all right. Well, anyway, um, Listener Elliot has some more stuff to say. So the, we've, we've talked about the Listener Elliot challenge, um, you know, where you go from 30 to 50 using one hero per rank and how this previous time Listener Elliot hit a um, hit a wall where they were just kind of frustrated by the way the game was going. Um, and, you know, they may and especially as a free to play player, you know, they were kind of thinking about what the frustrating cards that they were encountering were. And, you know, on the plant side, you've got Briar Rose and Cycle Cap and all that stuff. And on the zombie side, you've got, like, individual single busted cards, like Kitchen Sink Zombie, Thinking Cap, Exploding Fruitcake being a big one, and then Zombology Teacher they also mention. And, you know, they comment that the zombie cards on that list kind of don't have answers to them as much as the plant cards do, that, you know... In some cases, they're, like, pretty comparable power level. Like, I would say that Briar Rose is as good as any individual zombie card, given that it kills any zombie card that it goes up against and also can totally wreck you. But that, like, for things like Cycle Cap, you've got, like, Sneezing Zombie and Nibble and other stuff that's, like, good against that strategy, whereas the plants don't really have anything that they can do if 
you're running like exploding fruitcake. Like if if you're trying to hose them with a with a wing nut and they have exploding fruitcake to kill your wing nut, like that's kind of the end of it. You don't really have anything to do about that. I think this definitely plays into why Solar Flare is such a popular choice for free to play players to to make their money in because you get access to Berry Blast and Squash, which is a great way to get rid of cards that are more powerful than the average card you're running in your relatively new deck. And, like, it is the closest thing that plants have to that, that level of answer on on Fruitcake and, and other things. Like, it's not as uh, uninteractable as when a, a big zombie comes to ruin your day, but it can help you pick up a lot of ground. Agreed. And, I mean, you know, on the, th- the thing that's busted about Exploded Fruitcake is that it costs two. Um, you know, like, that that is a... That's a very cheap way to answer basically everything. Um, and then the other thing I want to say about that is, in this game, you know, you're really, like, jockeying for position a lot of the times. It's like the plant does a thing, then the zombie does a thing, then the plant does a thing, and the zombie does a thing, and you're kind of beating each other back and forth. And so in a, in a scenario like that, it's almost that it's not the attack that matters. It's like the counter-counter-attack that matters. So, like, they throw a punch, you block and throw a punch, and then they block and punch you back. And if you can't block that one, then you're the one that got punched. And so in this play pattern that I'm describing, zombies can kind of do their second best thing. And then the plant does their best thing, which is like Briar Rose or whatever. And then the zombies can still kind of one-up that with a thing that doesn't really have a counter so much. And that the plant player is kind of out of tools to deal with it. I mean, like, you could have another Briar Rose, but, like... If you played a Briar Rose and they dealt with it, you probably also lost the rest of your board, um, which means that your second Briar Rose is going to be that much less effective. Um, and so, you know, in terms of the, like, the perception of power versus actual power thing, you know, what leads people to say that things are OP versus things, like, actually being good enough to be unstoppable, that, like, lack of counter-counterattack really adds up to that perception of power thing, you know what I mean? Like, it feels a lot more frustrating to just, like, come up empty-handed. I definitely agree with that frustration being really powerful, but I don't think it's limited to the counter-counter-attack, because the plant has the first right to be totally overmatched and doomed. Like, you know, there's... The the way the turn progression happens, the zombie player plays their plank walker, and then the next thing that happens is the plant player either has a way to deal with it or is going to lose. Uh, sure, I mean, you know, the, the immediacy of certain threats that certainly, like, narrows the interaction window. I mean, that's what's so great about Bad Moon Rising is that, like, it happens with no interaction window. The interaction window is before you play the card. And so once you do it, it's just kind of up to the, it's up to the game whether you lose or not in that case. So that is kind of why I've always been more apt to describe as busted the things that lead up to the haymakers rather than the haymakers themselves. So, like, it took a really long time for regifting zombie the originally two mana three two that drew each player two cards to get bumped up from two cost to three cost so a lot of things that went with regifting zombie ended up getting nerfed and like from my perspective regifting zombie was the power source of decks like that it's the one that made your combo consistent it was the cheap thing to play on Manula nebula to get you the cards and the mana to cast them um and so you know the um it's it's kind of less important to me if your 8-mana Legendary Plankwalker kills them right away, because that's kind of what 8-mana Legendary cards are allowed to do. Like, you know, if it was a 2-mana 
uncommon card and it killed them right away, then that would be kind of weird. That's kind of not something that a card with that description is supposed to really do. But, like, it doesn't matter to me as much if the haymakers are busted, if it gets too easy to throw the haymakers and it's, like, too hard to interact with them before they get to do it. Um, then I think you got a problem. I think Elliot also has a very good point about the the power level of the cash shop zombie cards being Definitely. way, way better than the plant ones because, you know, you look at Zombology Teacher, you look at Kitchen Sink Zombie, you look at, uh, there's a third, Exploding Fruitcake, and what's the best cash-only plant event card? Is it Hot Date? It might actually be Hot Date. That's actually really shitty. I, I think I mean, that's not, the only hot plant... Date's not, hot Date's not shitty, but it's like, it's in comparison to those other three, like, it is it is not in the same league. It is a love tap, not a haymaker. Yeah, most definitely. I'm pretty sure it's um, the only cash uh, plant event card that I've crafted that hasn't come back in the weekly rotation. Yeah, I agree with that. That's just kind of a unfortunate artifact of where the PowerPoints got put. I mean, like, they seem to err on the side of of pushing the zombie cards harder than they pushed the plant cards on that front. I don't know if that was an accident or if that was a, if that was a concrete design decision, um, but you are... No argument there that um, Zombology Teacher, Kitchen Sink Zombie, and Exploited Fruitcake are on the short list of most busted zombie cards, and they all came from the cash-only shop. Yeah, and there's no plant equivalent of an equally busted thing for their side. And uh, also in the email is a pair of decks. There's a Barry Spadow, which is running Photosynthesizer, my man. And there's a Chompzilla deck, which seems to be about Strike Through and having things with attack. Oh yeah, it's got that. That's a good deck. There's a deck called Strikezilla that does those two things both. It's got that Strike Through Potatosaurus goodness. Sweet. Yeah, so these texts will be in the notes along with the rest of uh, all these emails and stuff. Uh, so thank you, listener Elliot, for writing in with some astute comments and cool decks. Yeah, this is all really cool. And thank you for inventing the listener Elliot challenge so we can use it as Absolutely. content for our show. Yeah, for sure. Our next piece of mail comes from listener Adam, who writes in and wants to know what uh, what we think the best slash most interesting Dino Roar effects are. And uh, they also are wondering about a Dino Roar effect that triggers from your hand and uh, how crazy ridiculous that would be. I think that would be pretty crazy ridiculous. Um, as they point out, you would not be able to proactively remove it as the opponent. So that would be pretty much a textbook definition of uninteractable. There are not cards in this game like there are in Magic where you get to like look at their hand and make them discard stuff. There's not even cards like Hearthstone where they randomly discard stuff. That's just not at all in the design space of this game. Uh, so I would think that Dino Roar in hand is probably a design space that they won't touch. Uh, one from hand effect I would be really interested in seeing is a uh, each turn this is in your hand decrease the cost of it by one sort of thing. There's a Hearthstone okay. card that I forget the name of, but it's like a 4-4 four, four that can eventually yeah, it's be a, good. It's a 6-mana 4-4, four, four, but if it's in your opening hand, you get to play it on turn 3. It's like a deck-building trade-off, you know? It's like a bad draw in the late game, but if it's in your opening hand, it's awesome. And so, like, that's 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 cool design. The most interesting design for Dino Roar to me, I think, is Lima Pluridon. Um, the Dino Roar shuffle a Magic Beanstalk into your deck. That just sits there and doesn't do anything until you eventually draw the card um and then it's like it's it's a cool way to do a digital only thing you know you get to do it in a phone game you don't you couldn't do it in real life 
Um, and it's also like it's one of the only things that does that. It's one of the only things that shuffles proactively shuffles stuff into your deck. Or at least, you know, that shuffle a beanstalk into your deck is one of the only things that does that. Um, there are a few cards that do that. Yeah. Um, but I think it's a fun Diana Roar. Yeah, and it helps a lot that the things that shuffles into your deck, uh, they'll draw you a card when, they play, when they're played and they cost one. Um, yeah, totally. I would probably have more praise to heap onto Lima Pluridon if I owned any of them, but uh, that is one of the handful of cards I have zero of, so uh, a little bit of sour grapes come from me, but it's pretty cool, I'm told. My good, you should make it. Yeah, that's prob that's probably what I'm going to make next now that I have uh, Astro Veras. Alright. My pick for the most interesting Dino War card is the Raiding Raptor. The sneaky the three mana two four that uh has Dino War gain plus two attack and then also a uh, conjure when it hurts the hero ability. And the reason I like this card is because it it is a cheap finisher, which is something I'm always drawn to. And it encourages a style of sneaky play that you don't see as much of like it is one of the most obvious targets for a smoke bomb out there and it also synergizes with strike through things like laser base alpha or huge giganticus's ice moon and i like the ability to make this card get really out of control big like the fact that it has one turn kill potential being able to make it into like a 10 attack big huge thing with a contra huge giganticus deck being able to proc the dino roar over and over and over again like i think that ability to super quickly build up its attack is really interesting i also like the um buffing attack but not health as we often mention when we talk about dino roar drawing cards is good enough that you want to do it already so when you incentivize it further stuff can get dangerous and so with things like Bananasaurus Rex, you know, once you draw a whole bunch of cards and the thing becomes so big that you can't kill it, then you're in the danger zone. Where things like Velociraptor or Raiding Raptor, that the health stays the same, but the power gets big, the same removal spells end up being good against it for the entire time. I mean, except it gets like hammer type stuff. But, you know, so those there's kind of a safety valve on how powerful those get to be, whereas the, the ones that buff attack and health, there isn't such a safety valve. Um, and I think that's good game design. I also, when I was thinking earlier about what my answer would be, I totally forgot Tankalosaurus existed. <laughs> otherwise, I probably would have said that. Thank you, Adam, for sending that in. So our uh, next question is a short one from listener Fred. It says, Dear Taylor and Mike, how would the game be affected if Valkyrie was nerfed to getting only plus one strength when a zombie died instead of plus two? Would it be good nerf, or would it make it not legendary good? So this is... Um, the the nerf that is most often bandied about when people talk about nerfing Valkyrie, um, it's either this or nerfing the cost. I believe that Fry em Up is of the opinion that this would be too severe of a nerf. Am I correct in thinking that, Mike? I, I he said that don't have a record for sure, but I think I think that sounds right. Like I, I don't think. Um, I, well, I'm not trying. If to he does believe up. that, I agree with him because I think <laughs> this would make Valkyrie unplayable. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that would be a pretty substantial power level hit i mean like it would it would take it away from being a finisher to just being like a good thing i think valkyrie is kind of supposed to be a finisher um even though it ends up kind of like a slightly not so fun play pattern when it is a finisher i think that like nerfing it such that you change its role in the game is is not the kind of nerf that you want to do on a legendary card um, so I'm agreeing with Mike and uh, Strawman Fryum up here, saying that that would be too uh, big of a nerf. Um, if it was me, I would probably make it just cost like five or maybe even six. I wonder how one and a half would do. If only one and a half were a real number. Hmm. 
Yeah, that's an interesting possibility. If it was like one or two at random. Oh no, no, I no, I I actually want one and a half. Okay. Hmm. Why do you say that? Uh, because it's the only thing between one and two. When two is too high and one is too low. <laughs> Uh, well, I guess to ask a stupid question, you get a stupid answer. I mean, I get, I guess I'm not asserting that two is too high. I think that it's just, like, it's too easy to do the combo. If it even is too easy to do the combo anymore, I mean, honestly, like, I'm not seeing a ton of, of Valkyrie stuff happening anymore. I suppose if they were able to, to have it be one and a half, and then when you played it, it just, like, rounded down, um, then that would be, that certainly would be less powerful, probably still powerful enough that it would be a good finisher. I think I got that solution from listening to people argue about basketball and whether three-pointers are too valuable because three is the next highest number from two and how much that screws up the math of, like, probability. Hmm. I was not aware that people thought that three-pointers were busted. That's what Gen Xers like to get really mad about. Were there not three-pointers in basketball in the 70s? It's relatively recent. They definitely weren't popular in, like, the 80s. Huh. I mean, but, like, they were... Huh. Interesting. I'm looking this up right now to see when it got put in, because it is relatively new. Okay, uh, yeah, 1979, the NBA adopted hmm. the three-point line. Because I didn't the, know that. Because the ABA, the American Basketball Association, stole its thunder a couple years early and was like, yeah, we're the crazy alternative league, and we have three-pointers, because that was a thing that happened in the 60s all the time, apparently. Interesting. You know what weird basketball rule that I would like to see um, was from some random sports show that I used to watch as a kid called Slam Ball? You remember Slam Ball? I remember the name. I don't remember anything about it. Um, the entire quarter of the court that was, like, from the edge under the basket forwards. Oh, um, with the trampoline? Were, were trampolines. And the and the net was, the net was like, 20 feet in the air. They're still doing that. I'm, I'm still seeing Slam Ball video clips out there. Like, Slam Ball is still a thing that happens. That was super sweet. At least that would like that really appealed to me as a as a little ass kid. When I was like, "Whoa, they're flying so high in the air!" Yeah, the whole like guts appeal. Yeah, absolutely. That was a reference to the thirty year old television show Guts for our younger listeners. <laughs> I don't think it's uh, actually thirty, but it's probably close. Uh, I mean, I was I was definitely in kindergarten when I was watching Guts. All right, let's do a last email. Yeah, our last email of the week comes from listener Graham, who writes in to talk about Loco Coco and how everyone hates it and how weak it is. So what they decided to do is uh, build a nut deck with uh, heavily featuring Loco Coco, but also things like Mirror, Mirror Nut and Pecanolith. And they uh, send in a Walnut deck, which looks pretty powerful, has uh, some good anti-meta tools. It's running the Solar Winds Briar Rose stuff, and it's running Wing Nut to stop bonus attack things, and then a bunch of high health dudes and some Pecanoliths. This deck looks pretty cool. What do you think, Taylor? I am glad to see that somebody else thinks that Loco Coco was good. When that set first came out, I said that Loco Coco was one of the legendaries that I was most excited about. And I said that because uh, I thought that Piconolith was rad and that this is like kind of an army in a can as far as Piconolith is concerned. And that um, the Nut Tribe in general is really good at keeping random little dorks around because like, you know, if you've got a 0-8 that's not hurting anybody, um, chances are it's probably just going to like sit there and either get pecked at or maybe even get ignored uh, while you do something else somewhere else so that there's always going to be like evolution fodder for the Loco Coco's evolution power and uh, I'm glad to see that uh, 
you know, something like this is working out well. Uh, Listener Graham claims to have about an 80% win rate with the deck, which is bananas. So uh, if that's indeed the case, then uh, you all should get off your asses and make some local Cocos because this deck seems to be the real deal. This deck would be really, really bad without Picanalists. Would you agree? I would agree with that, yes. Yeah, I think that is probably the thing that is keeping me from tapping that full Loco Coco potential, because that was one of the first legendaries I opened in the set, and I think it is one of the weakest legendaries in the game. Oh wow, I wouldn't go that far. Mostly because of the competition it has to deal with, because you look at six-cost plant legendaries, you've got things like Cobb Cannon, and really powerful evolution enter the battlefields. And then, if you're looking at legendaries for nut decks, you've also got Walnut Bowling to compete with, which is a very different kind of card, but a, a much more powerful one as far as doing the damage to win you the game, instead of filling the board with creatures that will eventually do the damage that will win the game. So I think Loco Coco's kind of caught in the middle, where it doesn't stand out as much as the other legendaries do, and as a result kind of gets uh, sweeped aside, left for these uh, decks who decide to get a little weird with it. Which, I'm glad you do. I'm glad people get weird with their decks and put in non-standard legendaries, because if people only played, like, the best meta cards, then this would be real boring. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have to basically agree with that. You know, it's certainly, um, compared to what it has to be competing with, um, it's certainly on the lower end of the power level. So something that I like about it is that it is, like, so first of all, you don't need Piconolith 100%, because if you evolve a nut, then your team gets plus two attack. So, like, you're still putting seven power and, what is it, 16 health worth of stuff on the board if you evolve a nut, um, and that's not nothing. But also it is able to play a dual role as finisher catch-up mechanic um, because it's kind of like Poppin' Poppies. It comes down and prevents a bunch of damage to you. Poppin' Poppies actually gains you life in addition to creating an ablative shield. This just creates an ablative shield, but the ablative shield is, like, much, much bigger, and so that might mean that it buys you more time. Um, and so, you know, I think that it's, it, it does have its niche to fill, but I do agree that Pecanolith is really the thing that makes this deck go. And then if you didn't have Pecanolith and you were just like your your nut tribe synergy was was coming from Mirror Nut, that you might want to go probably in a smarty direction and have maybe some more board control stuff, maybe playing into the grapes to use Mirror Nut to draw cards with, um, or different things like that. Um, you know, the fact that Pecanolith is able to sort of turn your zero attack dudes into heavy hitters instead of just, like, okay pangers, that means that you're able to, like, have it be plan A. But if you don't have Picanolith, then your plan A kind of has to be something else. That's fair, yeah. Also doing that dangerous thing where you're running Galactic Cactus and uh, Forget-Me-Not. Although I'm guessing for this kind of deck, you don't want the Cactus to come out early. That feels more like a way to set off your Mirror Nut a billion times and win. You there? And that was when Taylor's internet died. So that does it for episode 44 of Shroom for Two. And if you would like to get in on the next mailbag episode, if you want to write in about the game or $2 bills or basketball or anything else, you can get in touch with us at shroomfortwopodcast at gmail.com. 
And you can also check out shroomfor2.com for all of our old episodes and some other decks we've talked about in the past. And be sure to give us a rating on iTunes and let us know how many stars we are. It's five. Anyways, that was Taylor, and I'm Mike, and have a good weekend.